Well, hey there, everybody. Welcome to The Long Con, the podcast that takes a lighthearted and informative look at the destruction of American representative democracy and the utter collapse of Western civilization. My name is Paul Trainer, and never has that collapse been more evident than right now. Yes, this is uh, the, well, it was going to be the special coronavirus edition of the Long Con Pod, but you know what? We are not going to do a special coronavirus episode, although... Because of the coronavirus outbreak, uh, I assume you're all quarantined or uh, self-distancing right now, so it is a perfect time for you to enjoy this special Long Con double feature. So, those of you who do not know Nancy McLean, she is a best-selling New York Times author. Uh, Her book, Democracy in Chains, The Deep History of the Radical Rights Stealth Plan for America, was a finalist for the National Book Award. Uh, She is a professor of U.S. history and social movements at Duke University. Um, Her book is uh, engrossing, uh, scary, um, inspiring, uh, uh, concerning, all of these things. Uh, But Nancy herself, as you are about to to witness, is uh, about as delightful and friendly and accessible as they come. You may have seen Nancy on on Bill Maher or uh, CNN or many other places in talk radio or or at your university. Um, She's really like uh, Paul Revere (laughs) for the modern age, uh, riding across this uh, country all over and uh, and warning us that uh, the libertarians are coming. So anyway, um, all I can tell you is uh, that this uh, book and this conversation have been a huge, huge influence on me uh, because it really revealed the true depth and extent of the problem that we're facing. Because this lie that I'd originally discovered in my own backyard, you know, a little parochial argument about uh, free market economics and systemic racism that that burned for a few angry weeks here in Nutria Township, was actually the same lie that's uh, been told to Americans now for over 70 years. It really is the big lie. It's one that's intentionally crafted, and it's been refined over time to to pull the wool over all of our eyes. Uh, I mean, the intentional deception that has been perpetrated methodically and at tremendous expense on both conservatives and liberals, uh, on Democrats and Republicans alike, um, has been going on our entire lifetimes. So it really is the story of how America has reached its current crisis point. This story, at its core, is like every great story, really, a love story. A wildly unconventional love story based on economic theory, complete deregulation of businesses, the perpetuation of systemic racism, and the utter dismantling of every social safety net America has adopted over the last century. So the unlikely star-crossed lovers in this story of America are a billionaire industrialist ideologue and uh, a good old boy from Murfreesboro, Tennessee, who became a Nobel Prize-winning economist, as well as a key influencer of, of not only American economics, but of our entire political process. Now, I'm 99% certain you already know the industrialist. His name is Charles Koch. And he and his recently deceased brother David are known by most Americans as the Koch brothers. Charles Koch's soulmate in this sordid little American love story uh, is uh, an economist named James M. Buchanan, who is undoubtedly the most famous American economist that you've never heard of. But 
It was James Buchanan's efforts, uh, even more so than the ideas of the much more famous conservative darling, economist Milton Friedman, that uh, served as the foundation work for the long con. Buchanan took the basic uh, economic assumption of neoliberalism and folded it into a predictive analysis model for political behavior. This came to be known as public choice theory. And while Buchanan didn't originate it, he greatly expanded it and, uh, and really gave it uh, credibility in academia. It gave intellectual weight to the idea that politicians can never be trusted and that greed is good. So I really want to get into our uh, interview with Nancy, but uh, I think we should just briefly uh, hear a snippet from James Buchanan himself before we do that. Uh, so this was a, 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 an introductory speech he gave at a day-long conference uh, from 1983, I think. It was uh, um, at George Mason University, and it was sponsored by uh, the Institute for Humane Studies, uh, which is Koch's organization. And um, here's, uh, here's Buchanan himself describing his work in uh, somewhat uh, general terms. Ordinary politics, that is majoritarian democracy as observed in the United States, will more or less perform as we might predict from elementary public choice analytics. That is to say, we can come pretty close to predicting patterns of outcomes of the great game of politics. These players in the game will act strategically so to maximize their own utilities. And within these rules, we can say something about the patterns of outcomes that will emerge. Improvement must come by changing the rules, by modifying the Constitution, defining that term inclusively. We must look to the rules within, when, within which politics and politicians are allowed to operate. Okay, brief interruption. Pardon me for a moment. Uh, you can hear the language here. Uh, these players in the game are maximizing their own utility, the game of politics, etc. But what's most concerning about that little snippet is that he's uh, saying, you know, if you don't like the uh, the rules, uh, we need uh, constitutional change. What he, what they wanted to do, what Buchanan was suggesting, was um, um, enacting policies that would put, again, democracy in chains and take away the power of uh, individuals uh, to control um, their, their own country and their, and their own lives. Now we know, of course, the general attributes of the rules that define the minimal state. Property rights must be assigned and protected, and voluntary contracts must be enforced. But is anything beyond this required? So property rights must be preserved and protected, and uh, Voluntary contracts must be enforced, but is there any other role for government? I mean, that is the distillation right there, that they should only, in the government, protect uh, private property and, um, you know, intercede when absolutely necessary in personal disputes uh, arising from the marketplace. But but even that uh, should be very limited. So still uh, really kind of a fundamental idea uh, today and um, really will inform this uh, discussion with Nancy. So here's the end of uh, James's uh, kickoff remarks. So let me put the whole question in a slightly different way. What is required to ensure that Adam Smith's simple system of natural liberty will operate? Since it seemed to me that this is a system we should want to see developed within the set of rules that we should choose. Antitrust enforcement, as we observe it, may indeed be corrupt, misguided, inefficient. But let us not seem to be and be seen to be offering support carte blanche to those who would allow the monopolists to take over the world. Thank you. All right, so strong applause for that final thought, which um, just 
take a moment to think about what he just said, because uh, it's really kind of stunning. He's saying, we don't want to look like we're uh, helping the monopolists, nor uh, do we want to be caught helping the monopolists, because that's what we're really doing. So, um, yeah, again, just, uh, you know, keep that in mind as the uh, rest of this uh, discussion with Nancy um, uh, goes along. And I do want to just play, this is from the end of his life, a very brief snippet of him describing kind of his uh, fundamental life's work and, and the moral, um, you know, issue that he thought he was addressing uh, above all. There's certainly no measurable concept that meaningful that uh, could be called the public interest, uh, because how do you weigh different interests of different groups and what they can get out of it? The public interest, as a politician thinks it, does not mean it exists. It's what he thinks is good for the country, uh, and and to, to if he would come out and say that, that's one thing. But behind this hypocrisy of calling something the public interest as if it exists, is, is that's, that's what I was trying to tear down. All right, so there you go. There's a little taste of uh, James Buchanan in his own words. Uh, no such thing as the public interest. And his life's work was to uh, tear down the hypocrisy of that notion spread by politicians. You know, politicians are hypocrites, sure. Uh, is there hypocrisy? Sure. But no such thing as the public interest, you know, no obligation to have clean water or safe schools or, you know, uh, to take care of each other and things like we're witnessing right now with the coronavirus. Uh, But you can see why this made him so attractive to Charles Koch and why ultimately this was, um, you know, (laughs) the love match from hell as I describe it, and um, certainly Nancy McLean doesn't use those words, uh, but she does talk about how uh, influential this public choice theory, and in particular James Buchanan's work, uh, was for the radical right, which I call uh, the policy combine and the shadow state, um, which they call the Coctopus up at the Center for Media of Democracy. Uh, but certainly Charles Koch is the one with the uh, greatest uh, vision or, or most terrible vision. And James Buchanan was the um, one who gave him the uh, intellectual uh, cover and uh, academic uh, veneer to um, really create the draconian future that we're in today. So uh, without any further ado, uh, let's talk to Nancy McLean about that and her book. I am so excited that you took time to meet with us, and I appreciate it so much. Can we just start by talking a little bit about how you discovered James Buchanan? Sure. I had never heard of James Buchanan when I started the research that led to uh, my book. So if you haven't heard of him, don't feel bad. Not many people have. Uh, I was actually researching the story of the Prince Edward County, Virginia school closures, where white county officials answered the uh, court order to desegregate without further delay in 1959 in the wake of Brown versus Board of education by shutting down the public school system entirely. Uh, they actually shut it down for five years. They hoped to shut it down for longer, but they were stopped by federal courts. And so for five years, white children went off to private segregation academies beyond the reach of the courts, while black children had no education whatsoever, no formal education whatsoever beyond what social movement organizations could provide. And this uh, story I learned, this this terrible tragedy, had also uh, um, been involved with massive resistance in the state of Virginia and the use of tax-funded school vouchers to escape the reach of the Brown decision. And I learned that a number of free market economists, libertarians, folks on the right had actually applauded this part of massive resistance, this 
this um, uh, shifting of public monies to private schools to escape the reach of the courts and regulation. And so I became interested in that. And at first I was following Milton Friedman um, because he was the one who first appeared. And after all, he was famous. I knew who he was. Right. And he'd written that, uh, that um, article in like, was it 54 or 5 about exactly. how segregation, if we just make it about choice, it's all fine because people that want to integrate will and people that don't won't, right? Yeah, in 1955, he wrote the first manifesto for school vouchers of the kind that we're seeing now in which he says that he is opposed to uh, segregation by law. I forget the exact phrasing, but like segregation by law or integration by law, that everything yes, should right. be voluntary. Yeah, exactly. And again, talking about voluntary in the South in the mid-1950s when African-Americans were losing their lives for right. trying to exercise their basic democratic rights. It just it was a cynicism uh, beyond belief to me. So anyway, so I started following Friedman, but this Buchanan kept appearing in my peripheral vision. <laughs> So Buchanan had received his PhD in economics at the University of Chicago, which already at that point was known as the most right-wing market fundamentalist. Uh, and did he know department. Friedman at that time? He took classes from Friedman. Friedman was kind of the young kid on the block, and Friedman and Buchanan didn't get along very well, very contrasting personalities. Buchanan's response to the events of the 1950s was reacting to the Brown decision, but not just the Brown decision. And I think we forget today that for the South white elite, the New Deal itself was a huge blow. The idea that workers had the right to organize for collective voice, um, the idea that the federal government was entering states to say, hey, you should have safety standards, you should have hours laws, you should have workers' rights protections, and the country adopted Social Security. People were coming together. They were getting things like um, you know, consumer protections, restraints on corporate uh, misconduct, again, protections of workers, working people's collective voice, social insurance, unemployment insurance, things that made it so that people wouldn't just accept any job at any price under any conditions. And that made it hard if you were running a system of racial capitalism that depended from your point of view, on driving wages down to the bottom and having people disempowered, including through not being able to vote um, or influence the political process. So Brown was the latest blow mm -hmm. on the top of all these other things that had been happening. And it's interesting, Virginia um, had its own, Virginia is a kind of a snobby state. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so the other states had the white citizens councils that people are more familiar with, you know, the folks who hounded Dr. Martin Luther King and Montgomery and, and beyond. Virginia had its own analogous group that, that was the defenders yes the defenders of state sovereignty and individual liberties and frankly there's not a lot of light between Buchanan's program of political economy and the defenders but even to pay attention to that phrase state sovereignty which they definitely were pushing and individual liberties Clearly, for a segregationist group to have a name like that, you have to be saying that African Americans aren't human. I mean, you don't even recognize that they would have liberties worthy of respect, right? Well, it seems the core kind of tenet of this libertarian movement is uh, property rights. Yes. Actually, property rights meant people, right? Yes, like that exactly. Was, that was really the defense they were making, right? Yes. Yeah. And in our country, it's very interesting. I mean, you hear these debates still today where some people think that you can talk about uh, class or about economic injustice without addressing race. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and as a historian, I just don't see how that's possible because the original source of the most profitable enterprise uh, in our country in the 19th century after the, the invention of the cotton gin was property and people, right? 
people as property, men, women, and their children as property, profitable property to be used to raise staple crops that made uh, uh, South Carolina and Mississippi have more rich people per capita than New York City in the run-up to the Civil War. So uh, the ideas that came out of that um, from some people like John C. Calhoun, the South Carolina U.S. Senator, uh, defended a system of arch property supremacy. Uh, and Calhoun himself uh, developed those ideas as he saw the North gaining in population, saw that there was a national democracy, saw that around the world, um, you know, the Haitian Revolution, the um, anti-slavery movement in Britain, the developing anti-slavery movement in the U.S., he could see that in time, national democracy would go after slavery. It was pretty clear. He wasn't a stupid man. The handwriting was on the wall, and the numbers were there. Well, this was so, like early 19th century, so they were kind of already they were probably already talking about it then, right? Because it was 20 years before the Civil yeah, War. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So or? he starts writing this stuff in 1828. But anyway, his whole uh, intellectual and constitutional system was designed to protect these arch property rights, which included his rights as a as a slaveholder, right, mm -hmm. to not be interfered with by anyone else. Um, also, uh, states' rights was a big thing of his, right? Was he oh, yes. like the big push because like that's the, yeah. the one two punch of racism, right? Systemic racism. Yeah. So, I mean, again and again in American history, what you see is this defense of arch states' rights coming from the places that practice the most egregious domination of their populations of color and their working populations more generally. So it was Calhoun's ideas that were revived by the state of Virginia to fight the Brown versus Board decision uh, in the 1950s, you know, more than 100 years after he had articulated them. And most people thought that the Civil War had settled and that these ideas uh, were not an accurate interpretation right. of the, the Constitution, uh, but the state of Virginia wanted to raise uh, matters above, as one person put it, the sordid matter of race and raise it to the level of constitutional theory. And there was no way to do that in the 20th century uh, with 20th century jurisprudence. So they went back to John C. Calhoun and disinterred <laughs> these ideas from Calhoun and used them to fight Brown. Late 19th 55 and early 1956 was the period in which the Virginia uh, legislature passed the whole suite of massive resistance measures, having first passed um, uh, a measure to uh, uh, interpose their authority against the federal government. So the whole thing that Virginia was doing in fighting Brown was built on Calhoun's constitutional theory. So James Buchanan moves in. These ideas are everywhere. They're being debated in the newspapers. They're all over the place. And he starts thinking about the Constitution in this context. And lo and behold, his constitutional theory comes out to be quite parallel to John C. Calhoun's, but dressed up in a more modern language of game theory and all these things that were happening uh, in the economic economics profession and, and political science in the uh, 1950s, in the Cold so, War. So is it too fine a point to say then that, I mean, it's a str straight line from uh -huh. John C. Calhoun and the defense of slavery as an institution, the use of states' rights and property rights into this kind of foundation of this modern libertarian movement, where with Mont Pelerin mm -hmm. and Buchanan, I mean, again, it's property rights, rights mm -hmm. of the individual. I mean... Well, I'm a historian and therefore a little bit of a nitpicker. <laughs> so I would say that it's not an unbroken line because it's a line that has been broken at different points. But what you see is these ideas getting 
uh, rediscovered, rearticulated, repurposed to deal with different challenges. But if you boil those challenges down, you keep coming up uh, with the same equation, which is the we the people, <laughs> right? The power of a national uh, democracy, of people being able to exercise majority voice to um, do the things that the people deem necessary to be done versus this property rights supremacy. Uh, and so, uh, you know, there, and I, the reason I'm being a, a, a nitpicking on this is that some of Buchanan's defenders and some of these libertarians will say, well, that's ridiculous. You know, we're not talking about John C. Calhoun, right? Mm -hmm. But the funny thing is that some of Buchanan's own colleagues, two men who have worked with Charles Koch for years now, a man named Tyler Cowan and another named Alexander Tabarrok, they actually wrote a piece calling John C. Calhoun, this is their word, a precursor to the public choice theory developed by James Buchanan. And they said the, the two schools of thought had the same purpose and effect. And I could not agree more, but if we want to call that, an, I, you know, I think, so I wouldn't go with unbroken line, but absolutely a parallel uh -huh. in, in the, the ideas and what they are aimed against and what kinds of intellectual resources they are marshalling against their perceived threat in order to defend this property rights absolutism, no question. So one of the weird things that we saw in New Trier when this was all unfolding uh -huh. was that the local groups, there was such a, they pushed back against a seminar day on civil rights saying they weren't showing both sides and they wanted to talk about school choice and all of these well, types of uh -huh. things of, you know, black self-reliance. But, you know, they talk about identity politics as this terrible thing now mm -hmm. and they deny kind of fundamentally that systemic racism is a thing. Yes. You know, that's what's yeah. so weird is that, you yes. know, they would deny that connection and yet they won't even look at or acknowledge, it feels like, in that whole movement mm -hmm. that systemic racism is part of our culture. Yes, absolutely. I mean, this is a pattern that you see certainly among the libertarians, but also on the wider right in America. Uh, at least since the days of Barry Goldwater in the 1960s, this sense that um, a priori assumptions, right? That American capitalism is this wonderful system and it's kind of a perfect system, right? And so that if anyone is not doing well in that system, is not flourishing, it must be their own fault. They must be, as Barry Goldwater, I forget exactly how he put it, but um, uh, basically they must be stupid or not be trying hard enough or not have talents, et cetera. And so, uh, so it is very much a social Darwinist conception mm -hmm. of the population uh, that issues from this notion that this is a great system, the market is fair, the market is pure. You know, if the market produces an outcome, that must be the right outcome. And so they've long been concerned to deny, deny that systemic racism exists. And in fact, you can find that in Prince Edward County. They said, the, the county supervisors in Prince Edward County said, why should we build a better school for these black children? Their parents should get better jobs and develop their tax base, and then they can have a better school. To which, of course, the parents and the principal said, well, isn't that putting the cart before the horse? How could we possibly get better jobs um, without having education, right? And you won't let us have education. But, but I think uh, many Americans, particularly in the North, don't understand how much these questions of taxation and political economy were part of the Southern resistance to Brown at the time. That it wasn't just some atavistic racism. You know, I don't want my child to sit by your child. It was also a whole philosophy of society that some people have, they thought, you know, to their minds, 
they had earned their place and their privilege. And look at these other people. They're just agricultural workers or laborers. And they, never, they would never put the two together because they never judged the people that they were dominating as being fully human and possessed of the same talents and desires and abilities as, as they if they had had the chance to, to realize those uh, talents and desires. So it is, um, it is just something that's built into the DNA of the American right to fuse those things in that way. And even that language of uh, identity politics as kind of a, um, a spit word, you know, spit phrase, right, and a sneering phrase, uh, to me as a historian is uh, quite ironic because we wouldn't have what they call identity politics, i.e. the civil rights movement, the women's movement, the lesbian and gay movement, had we not had systematic discrimination against those groups for years, right? right. So all of the very good you know, programs that came out of the New Deal, you know, the workers' rights, social security, you know, all kinds of labor protections and so forth, they were wonderful, but huge numbers of African Americans were excluded from them because mm -hmm. Southern uh, members of Congress managed to exclude agricultural workers domestic workers and uh, some other smaller categories. So therefore, you had snowballing inequality, right? As mm -hmm. this system produced mass uh, post-war affluence, there were others who didn't enjoy that, African-Americans in particular, uh, Latinos, particularly those who had come in through some of the farm programs that didn't give them full citizenship rights, and women, because the whole system was based on a family wage model mm -hmm. that assumed that the man would be the breadwinner and the woman would be the homemaker, even if she was in the labor force full-time, right? Yeah. So these social movements, uh, and I'm a scholar of social movements, of African-Americans, of women of all backgrounds, of Latinos, of uh, queer people came up precisely because the system was not what it said it was. Right. It was not universal. It was not fair. And it was not recognizing legitimate grievances by people who were held down by the system. So you get those identity movements. As soon as you could get white Americans <laughs> and men to admit that there's mass systemic discrimination and has been for a long time, and we could have inclusive policies, uh, policies then I think we wouldn't see it as much in the way of identity politics. And right. in fact, we have seen that in countries with more inclusive welfare states and more inclusive citizenship and universal health care and such. You don't see those movements being as strong mm -hmm. because they don't need to be. With all of the different, uh, you know, kind of groups that have uh, faced oppression and whatever, it mm -hmm. still seems like uh, for me that this black and white thing is like America's pastime, yes. right? It's yes. really like yeah. our history. It's, yes. uh, you know, our third rail. Yeah. And, um, you know, that idea that there was discrimination mm -hmm. and then there was the Civil Rights Act and then all of a sudden black people got everything they ever wanted and now they're discriminating against white people. Thanks, Obama. You know, yeah. but, but they can't acknowledge that this systemic racism is there. And yet we had this in Trier in our neighborhood when they're pushing back against this. But then in Chicago, we had, you know, redlining. Yes. You know? Yes. Uh, we have the, the neighborhood I live in where all mm -hmm. this happened. The, the deeds in a lot of the houses had non-white, you know, um, uh, um, restrictive, restrictive covenants, covenants yeah. in the deeds, you know, yes. non-Christian. Right. And, you know, then in Chicago, of course, we've seen mm -hmm. all this about the generational wealth. Yes. Where after the GI Bill, you know, black people that wanted to buy, you know, a soldier coming home in the 50s that wanted that American dream mm -hmm. was going to get a super high interest loan in an area that was, you know, a bad area that mm -hmm. had no guarantee or protection. And on the North Shore, you know, they're getting, um, you know, FHA approvals. Mm -hmm. You know, like the government was involved. Like, Absolutely. The, like the FHA wouldn't approve 
black people in right. white neighborhoods, mm -hmm. and they wouldn't approve outside of those neighborhoods. Yeah, so the whole um, Contract Buyers League, I mean, African Americans could not get regular um, FDIC-approved mortgages, so they got these predatory loans, which were in the form of contracts, and so instead of building equity in a home, you would have to make all of your payments uh, to the end before you got any equity, before you got the home, you know, and invariably, whatever, you have a layoff, somebody dies in the family, something like that, um, you might miss a payment. Well, when you missed a payment, you would completely lose your house and everything else that you'd paid in. So the um, uh, pilfering, it's too, it's too mild a word for the, the taking of wealth out of African-American communities precisely from the people who could have built up those communities with their home ownership and their investments uh, went on for decades mm -hmm. um, and really bled those communities of, of resources so that now we have this huge wealth gap between blacks and whites, which is much bigger than the income gap. And I, and I think you're quite right that it goes back to this, um, you know, what some people call the original sin of America, certainly this, this founding uh, conundrum and that the people who were most vocal about liberty were articulating their ideas of liberty while they were holding other people as property, right? And, and so liberty and slavery were bound together and racial slavery at that Mm -hmm. from the very beginning. So some of our most brilliant historians have written on this um, yeah, and, and, and struggled with it, but it's, it, it has continued to shape our culture and institutions. Yeah, on that point, I just read this article basically talking about how, you know, John Locke at the beginning of the Enlightenment oh, yeah, period is that. like, yeah, yeah like, um, yeah. you know, that racism was baked in the cake then too. Yes. Like this whole kind of foundation, right, right. of we're about logic and right. reason and whatever um, has, a, has a premise of, but these people are less Don't than. count, yes. Yeah. Well, and I think all of this, in a way, comes down to the question of what is patriotism, right? Is patriotism a blind, um, you know, my country, love it or leave it, <laughs> don't tell me anything bad? Right or, or is patriotism something that we even get counsel from the founders on of we the people in order to build a more perfect union, <laughs> which suggests that it's an ongoing process. And these were people of the Enlightenment, men of the Enlightenment in their case, who understood the power of human reason and critique and the capacity of, they would say, men to learn from their history and their mistakes in order to do better. They were people of science who understood the need for testing and experimentation and so forth. And so, to my mind, to watch some of these people, you know, sort of parade as though they are great patriots, it's not really true. It's a kind of white ethnic nationalism, which is very toxic um, uh, to our society, whereas I think the true patriots are the people who say we have a, a, a country that we love <laughs> and that we're part of that has um, a history that's very inspiring and a history that's very troubled. And sometimes those two things are bound together in ways we need to understand in order to face the challenges of our world and frankly, just to be honest. Another thing that I just learned about um, from your book, you mentioned it already, was the Mont Pelerin Society. Yes. And that mm -hmm. was kind of a, to me, it kind of seems like these were these things that were happening, happening you know, it was just yes. a little before, but this yeah. is where it bubbles up from. Yeah. So. Yes. So uh, in 1947, uh, Friedrich Hayek, um, one of the early Austrian econ economists of the type favored by Charles Koch, um, one of the people he's taken inspiration from, convened a group of like-minded thinkers with the backing of uh uh, foundations funded by right-wing <laughs> businessmen, uh, and they convened in Switzerland uh, in order to, as they put it, save liberalism. Now, what they meant by liberalism was the 
18th and 19th century variety, the, the right? The neoliberalism, exactly. right? Is this the Adam Smith? Yes. And that's, yes. what is that, the invisible hand of the market? Yes. Yeah. And, and so though this was the period when the Cold War was being joined in earnest, they were actually more concerned with the social democracies of the uh, Western Europe and the United States and with this idea that the people were looking to governments to do things that the people thought the governments should do, right? Like social security, like health care, like um, investing in higher education for providing a more opportunity for children of all backgrounds, all those kinds of things they thought of as illegitimate. And Hayek himself wrote a book called The Road to Serfdom, where he said basically any government intervention is going to put you on the slippery slope to serfdom. Uh, and uh, so they wanted to combat that by developing this body of ideas that sometimes now is called neoliberalism, sometimes free market fundamentalism. Uh, but that body still exists today. Charles Koch joined in 1970 and immediately began advertising for his various organizations within it and recruiting for them. Uh, and it is a transnational group. It now has a transnational group of uh, um, activist organizations connected with it in something called the Atlas Network, which operates in 90 countries with over 450 affiliates. Um, um, and it is like the international equivalent of the state policy network that you've been dealing with in Illinois with its affiliates. But all of them uh, promote this idea that group action, whether it's labor unions or civil rights or environmentalists, that that's somehow antithetical mm -hmm. to the free society. Uh, and that also people shouldn't be allowed to appeal to governments um, and persuade majorities to get government to do what governments have been doing for more than 100 years now. So it's it's really, uh, it's quite a set of ideas. And, and most people who are looking at it, at least those not within it, but internationally at this point and across academic disciplines are realizing that this isn't really about freeing markets, as the rhetoric suggests. It is about re-engineering government and making government serve those holders of property, right, of big property in particular, mm -hmm. and corporations by constraining the democratic freedoms of the rest of the populations in those countries. And it, it is going on transnationally. And it feels like um, that uh, um, they're really kind of fundamentally against the idea of representative democracy. Right. Well, what they would say um, is that uh, they wouldn't quite put it like that, but it is true <laughs> that they are very anti-democratic. What they want to do is make it, and Buchanan was the genius at this, but Friedrich Hayek was, was, was uh, similar in some ways. And Friedman was there at the first meeting too, right? Yeah, uh, yes, yeah. Um, but Friedman wasn't as extreme as either Hayek or uh, Buchanan. So wrap your mind around that. You yeah, know, most you, people know Friedman as being pretty extreme on the spectrum, but he he actually, to their mind, was too much of a reformist. Uh -huh. Right? Well, you made that point in the yeah. book, I think, that, that because Friedman believed that the government had a role in resolving third-party disputes, that uh -huh. he was way too, you know... Yeah, yeah, too conciliatory. Yeah, 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 Friedman was too conciliatory for them. But so what they wanted to do was, um, uh, as I put it, you know, put democracy in chains, right? Put shackles around what the people could do, what the people could do together while still maintaining the outward form of representative democracy. So in the United States, we would still have the Senate, we would still have the House, we would still have the presidency, the Supreme Court, but what people could actually do would be radically constricted. And right as we're speaking now, this project is moving forward in the Supreme Court in terms of what people can do. You know, they've just ruled in the Janus case that 
uh, public sector worker, uh, public sector unions cannot charge agency fees for, for non-members, knowing that that will change the incentives and debilitate those organizations. So it is a project of, as Buchanan put it, constitutional revolution. That's what he wanted to see, was a new constitutional structure. His thinking was so radical that he did not believe that any constitution in the world adequately protected the rights of the wealthy and the property owners, those he called productive contributors. He said every constitution in the world was a failure by that measure. So he set out to design this new kind of constitution, which was tested under the Pinochet dictatorship. It is still in place today, restricting what even two-thirds of the Chilean people can do together, and that's the kind of constitution they want to bring to America. Yeah, I mean, Buchanan helped with that constitution, right? Absolutely. And didn't Friedman make positive statements about it? And so it's interesting. Friedman was invited by the military junta in Chile in 1975 to advise on inflation. They had runaway inflation, and so he prescribed a very draconian approach to that uh, inflation and uh, was roundly excoriated for abetting that brutal dictatorship uh, and never lived it down. But what he did was temporary. What Buchanan did was permanent. And Buchanan was invited five years later when there was even much more exposure of the way that dictatorship had operated. The thousands of people killed, the organizations suppressed, the um, uh, getting rid of free speech. Just before Buchanan went, they purged the universities. That was in the New York Times. But he went uh, and advised on this constitution, which in a number of different ways overrepresented the property people and the military in the constitution and made it nearly impossible to amend that constitution or to reverse the things that the dictatorship had done while the people had no power and there were no political parties and no free speech, including Social Security privatization. They sent, they, they, they took away the public pensions, they made everybody have these private investment accounts. Where do you invest those mm -hmm. accounts? With an unregulated financial sector, because these people don't believe in regulation, yeah, right? Regulation. So that's what they want to bring to America is to end Social Security and Medicare and basically anything else that is now public and have us have individual accounts for all of these things which would be invested with unregulated financial corporations. We've seen this movie before. We know how it ends, right? right? And that is part of why they're not honest about what they're doing. So they will say, we want to reform Social Security. Social Security is insolvent. We are going to save it. It's like, they're not going to save it. But our journalists don't know enough to say, what do you mean by reform? Do you support the principle on which Social Security was created? Do you support the idea of social insurance? They don't. But right. they're not even asked that question because, sadly, too few people understand what this is all about. Well, and it seems like they started to really get a foothold. You know, Goldwater didn't make it, but in, in the 80s, that idea of government, I'm from the government and I'm here to help, is really uh -huh. where the rhetoric started catching on of uh -huh. government is bad, full yes. stop. Yes. So this idea of Grover Norquist, I mean, we want to make government small enough to drown it in a uh -huh. bathtub. That's not an exaggeration. I mean, that's like what they want to do, right? They want elimination mm -hmm. of any protections or, or, or uh, you know, um, popular control over uh -huh. the mechanisms of the market and the economy and all of that, right? Right. Well, Ronald Reagan talked the talk of libertarianism and famously said in um, in inaugural address, government is not the solution to our problem, government is the problem. And I, uh, in the Reagan archives, uh, the Presidential Library archives, found him advising uh, federal appointees saying, once you begin to refer to the government as we instead of they, we will have begun to lose the fight to drain the swamp.
So really? people think this swamp language started with Donald Trump. No, it goes way back on the right, and Ronald Reagan used it too. But the difference is that Ronald Reagan wanted to be popular. Right. And so Ronald Reagan, you know, talked the talk. But when it came up to realizing that what these libertarians, including his first budget director, David Stockman, that the the the, the cuts that Stockman's first proposed budget would have inflicted would have affected core Republican constituencies, Social Security and Medicare, older people, veterans benefits, farmers, teachers, across the board would have been devastated. And you should read Stockman's own language about how they'd be bloodletting and bone jarring and all this. And this, he was the advertiser for this program, and that's his language. Reagan realized that and said, well, golly, I don't want to do that. People won't like me. <laughs> you know? So right. what he did is left us with huge deficits. So, so to understand how radical this libertarian cause is today, it's really important to understand that Ronald Reagan was a terrible disappointment to them. They, they uphold his name today. They put his image on various things. But as a governing official, Reagan did not go nearly far enough for them, nearly far enough. Well, they wanted him to do much more. He didn't. And George W. Bush did not either. Both of them backed up from inflicting the kind of radical, disruptive, destructive change that this libertarian cause wants. And when they saw that happen again and again, and they saw the population changing in ways that would make it even harder for them to get what they wanted, and when they saw environmentalism growing, and these are guys from the fossil fuel industry, right? And they saw people talking about climate change, global warming it was called in the 1990s. That's when Charles Koch said, okay, this is it. <laughs> right. I'm getting serious here. We're going to get a plan. We have the technology from Buchanan's ideas to do this thing. Let's apply it. And applying that technology meant basically using Buchanan's ideas of how the 20th century liberal state had developed in order to reverse engineer that state without being honest with the people about what they're doing, about what the end game is, or even the particular true purpose of any of the measures they're using. Two examples of that, Scott Walker with that budget bill right. that was the, you know, kind of opening salvo of all this. He never campaigned saying he was going to destroy the collective power of working people in Wisconsin, right? And kneecap public employee unions of teachers and firefighters and, and nurses and so forth. No, um, he talked about the budget. And anyway, so you see what it's like not being honest about the particular. And that's an ongoing theme, for example, with the voter suppression. So the Koch network organizations systematically promote this myth, an absolute myth of voter fraud that depends on racism. It depends on saying, how do we get a black president? It was those people. Those people shouldn't be voting. That's the implication, right? And you only believe this myth of voter fraud if you have those ideas that some voters are illegitimate because no scientific research sustains that idea. Everybody says it's a non-problem, but they use that in order to get voter suppression because they know they can't come out to the public and say, you know, we can only get our program if we keep people of color, single women, uh, young people, uh, and, uh, and, and many seniors from voting. We'll only win that way. They can't say that. No. They, and by the way, these guys don't even like women's suffrage. They say women's suffrage is when things started to go to hell. So these Koch network operations that have weaponized James Buchanan's ideas realize that they cannot achieve uh, the property supremacist future they hope for by being honest with the people. Uh, because the people don't want this kind of thing. And every time it's explained to them, they 
recoil from it and try to stop it. And so what they're doing is using their knowledge of how uh, government changed and developed over the 20th century and the early 21st in order to reverse engineer that. Um, and they do that with uh, things like voter suppression, with the most extreme uh, gerrymandering we've ever seen so that these legislators are choosing their voters rather than voters their legislators. And in states like North Carolina, where we are and where I, I work, um, they're doing that because they are a minority, right? Mm -hmm. And the only way they can achieve the power to do what they want to do is by systematically misrepresenting the majority. So, well, I mean, the whole thing is just, you, you could, I, I, for a while I thought, I, I, I must be crazy <laughs> when I was researching this. I thought, how could this be happening? I mean, this, this is just impossible to actually conceive that someone would have the audacity to have this vision of radical change without being honest with the people. And yet, when I got into the archives and saw the private papers and correspondence, it's like, you're not wrong. It is happening. And we ignore it at our peril. And it's worse than you think. It is actually worse than we think. Uh, that's kind of a bummer, huh? But don't despair, everybody, because, uh, wow, that was an intense conversation, right? And there is plenty more to come with Nancy McLean, and uh, we're going to try to work our way to a positive resolution in that conversation, uh, which will resume right at the top of Episode 5. We'll dive right back into it. Uh, so please um, dial that up, download that now. You can get into it. Hope you guys are staying healthy and well. Please like us on Facebook and our YouTube channel. Subscribe to that. Uh, we really are uh, excited to be bringing you a bunch of uh, episodes on a, a number of compelling subjects, uh, but it's really going to be your support and interest that uh, keeps it going. So right now, all that means is uh, listen, share, make a comment on Facebook, uh, weigh in, tell us that you're enjoying it, that uh, you're, you're out there, and um, it will be a great comfort to us to know you're out there while we continue to self-distance here at the Long Con. Thanks, everybody.